Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand were sealed. The tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to them, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. The Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We come now to the second part of Revelation chapter 7. Last time we spoke about the sealing of the 144,000 as we saw it as a typological, not an unreal number, something pointing to the very real reality of how it was going to be exactly the number of spiritual Israel down to the last detail. None would be missing. That number is known to God. It is a definite number. It is a number for those for whom Christ died. We don't know that number. John heard that number, and it was spoken to us that we might understand that it is perfect in its fullness. But now we see something. Now we see this chapter divided in these two parts. First we hear the number, this perfect number of God's people, and then we actually see them in all their reality. This number that there's so many of them that no man can count them. 
So we focus on this great multitude that no one can number. John heard the number of those being sealed. Now there's this seeing, this beholding of the great multitude, and in response to that seeing, there is worship. And that's what I think the passage is mainly about. It's about worshiping God in the greatness of his works. And I want us to worship too. Do you understand? Perhaps I haven't made this clear, but the greatest of human joys is worshiping the living God. And it is in those times that we are truly worshiping God that we are most joyful. And it is the joy of these things that enable us to carry on to all sorts of times. And how I would desire then that we would worship like those in heaven beholding this great work. Now I recognize there is a difference between us and them. We are still clouded by sin. But one thing that can be similar is that we can have before our hearts and before our minds this great object that they were beholding. To behold the finished work of Christ. All you have to do is to have that before your mind. And you will worship. We do this sort of thing for much lesser works, don't we? Houses, gardens, great food creations we make, the organizations we build up. And we say to others, whether we actually say it or not, but we, in a way, we prompt them, Behold! Look at what I've done! And sometimes it is very impressive. There's no denying it sometimes. God has made us in his image and we're capable of wonderful things. It sometimes reflects great skill and effort and perseverance. And we say, wow, that's, that's amazing. Well, much more so with the work of Christ. Because just speaking theoretically, don't you think that if Christ, almighty God in human flesh, were to set his infinite mind to doing some great work, taking not just a few years to do it, but taking centuries and millennia, don't you think that it would be even better than such things? Don't you think that we'd be prompted to say a little bit more than, wow, that's great? Much better. And don't forget, Christ has already told us in the previous chapter to wait for it. The souls of the faithful witnesses were told to wait a little while longer for something good. Till the end, the number of their brethren was made complete. Wait. Just wait a little while longer. And the four angels prepared to destroy this world because it cries out for destruction. And they are prepared for its destruction. And they are told, hold back a little while longer because I'm doing something important here. Don't you think it's going to be good? And these angels, they've been, frankly, they've been waiting a long time. And after all that wait, when it's finally done, do you think they're going to be disappointed with a finished product? Or do you think it's going to be worth the wait? I think it's going to be more than worth it. And the title of this sermon is Behold the Finished Work of Christ. And we consider it in these three headings. Behold a great multitude. Two, the sight provokes worship. And three, the question, who are these? Behold a great multitude. 
We read in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. It is, I want us to see, a great multitude in more than one way. First of all, and of course, most obviously, the greatness of the number. It's driven home by the fact that it is impossible to count, not impossible to God. He knows the number precisely, impossible for man to count. And what does that point us to immediately to the covenant promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15? God brought Abraham outside. Why? What is he going to do? He's going to give him an object lesson. Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them, knowing he was not able to number them. Why? Because God is a creator, and he created this universe in order to point to these sort of things, and he made sure that there were more stars than he could number. He says, so shall your descendants be. The true seed of Abraham, there's going to be more than anyone can number, this great multitude, more than the stars in the sky. Now, please do not think that it's just the case for Abraham working in the ancient world, no telescopes, no technology. I want you to know that is true in the case today with the Hubble Space Telescope and this huge number of high-speed computers and all these scientists working worldwide If anyone tells you they know exactly how many stars in the universe, they are lying. They do not. Even today, no man can number those stars. Just recently, there was some uh, headline that they had missed, I forget exactly how many million or billion stars that they were off on the number. God designed it to be impossible to count. No man can number the stars, and no one can number this great number of the redeemed people. Another picture, by the way, is the sand of the sea. You know, when Jacob is praying, he reminds God what he promised to him. And, and to, in Genesis 32, 12, make your, you will make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's the greatness of it in its extent. It's not just a few, it's many. I think it's also great in its diversity. That's something perhaps that Ab- it wasn't quite so obvious to Abraham. Maybe not quite so obvious to Jacob. And now is being made patently clear and obvious in the way that this is described. It's described as all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. All those sort of ways that you can possibly divide people up. Politically and ethnically and linguistically, geographically, the greatness of its diversity. You see, the greatness of God is that he is the universal God. He's not like the Canaanite deities. You remember how they had their own special little territory and they had their own special power. Well, this one's in charge of fertility and this one's in charge of something else. And they, they thought, for instance, that um, the Lord wasn't powerful outside of a certain territory. And the Lord had to prove them wrong there but it's not just Palestine it's not just the Near East it's the whole world in all places and all times that he is God the true God is the creator and the redeemer of all people all over the world that he has made and perhaps when John saw it for himself he was impressed he said well it's not just the Jews in his time that was dawning on the church 
took them a while to get fully used to that, but that, that news had been given to them. It's for the Gentiles. It's not just Samaritans, as amazing, amazing as that was. It seemed probably difficult for them to imagine that Samaritans would come. It's not just Greeks. I'm sure as John looked out there, he saw tribes and tongues that he didn't even know existed, as well as those who imagined to be extremely hardened to the gospel. They're all there. That includes people that we might think are resistant to the gospel right now. Because at various points in history, there are those hardened people. And God gets all the more glory because eventually he brings them even still. Maybe not all of them, but some of them from every tribe and tongue. We think of those who are hardened today. I don't know, maybe the Chinese, maybe... Maybe those in the Middle East, I'm not sure. But we can look out in the mind's eye and see the Chinese and the Iranians and the Afghanis and the Saudis and all the rest of them. Because God is a great God. This is not a local religion. This is not something designed for one ethnicity. It only works for us. He is a God of the whole world. And he will have people from every tribe and tongue under heaven. Now adding to this greatness, the great number, the great diversity, is the fact that they're all in white robes. Now we'll consider how they got them in a little while. But just for a moment, just consider they all have them. And that's amazing. Incidentally, that's an element of this Trinitarian unity in diversity. We spoke of how God, is the, the real Christian God, is the only one to be able to make sense out of unity and diversity. Here they have these, every tribe and tongue, yet they are completely unified. Why? Because they're all wearing these white robes. Only God can do that. But moreover, of course, the greater thing that, brings, that should bring us awe is how did this happen? We know these white robes are a sign of perfect holiness. They're standing before the living God in their perfect, pure, white holiness. How on earth is that possible? Because it is not just that we in our prejudices think of some other nations and tribes and so forth as dirty people. These people that have completely rebelled against God. He said they are dirty. We're all dirty. Sinful in the extreme. In this great company, you can be sure that there are going to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. Why can we be sure of that? Because even in the little sample in Corinth, Paul says, and such were some of you. And there they are. Somehow they have these white robes. Somehow they've been made perfectly clean in order that they might stand in heaven for God forever. That is great. That is a great work. Behold the greatness of this multitude. And secondly, this sight provokes worship. Now we understand that sometimes people worship things that they shouldn't worship on this earth. And we don't emulate them. If people are worshipping some sort of celebrity or, or sports team or whatever, that's not worthy of our emulation. But this thing we need to understand, that the sinless inhabitants of heaven, this is provoking them to worship. It says in verse 10, And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Now, obviously, the ultimate, the supreme, final object of their worship is God himself, is Christ Jesus. That is absolutely true. But he is not directly and specifically in focus here. He's in the foreground. But the focus of the picture, as it were, is on something else. Now, last time the whole heavenly host were brought to worship, it was in the Lamb. The Lamb demonstrating his transcendent greatness by being able to carry out and carry forward the work of redemption. That was a great thing that brought heaven to worship, the Lamb himself. What's now bringing, what is the specific thing now bringing us to worship here? It's the result. It's the saints. It's the innumerable company of the redeemed. And the elders and the living creatures, as if they can't believe it. They can't take it in. It's staggering. It was like the angels beholding the creation of the universe. As it says in Job 38, 7, The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. They marveled at God's handiwork in creation. But this is much, much better. Much better. These are just balls of flaming gas in the sky. Stars. Yes, there's a lot of them, and they're beautiful. But that only shows about this much of God's glory. This innumerable company of saints shows a vastly much more amount of God's glory and his holiness and his wrath and his love and his grace and all the rest of those things that brought them to this place. This is much better. And they are marveling at God's handiwork. And we ourselves are going to be overjoyed, not merely because we ourselves have been saved. Now, we know at this time that there is a, a great reaction against individual salvation in the church, and it is a complete overreaction. The emphasis is indeed on bringing individual souls to Christ. But here, here, we are looking at the net effect of this perfect work in all of its vastness. And here I think we as saints are going to be overjoyed in seeing one another. Not so much in the sense of, of particular people, but in that God has brought all of these people, not just us, but everyone else as well. All these, this great number of God's people brought to faith in Christ. And this bride... This bride of Christ, that's what's provoking the worship of the angels and the elders and the living creatures. They see Christ himself, the lamb who's been slain, and they worship. And now they see the effects of his redeeming work standing before them, and they worship. Now the specific content, the things that are mentioned in this worship, the elements in verse 12 saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. You see how that is bringing them then to these glorious attributes of God. They recognize in it that this was no ham-handed effort. They recognize it in this great glory of God, this great wisdom. Why? Because they know what these people were like. They know where they came from. That's one of, We'll get to that, but there's a question. Who are they and where do they come from? Because you have to think about the sad state that they were in. 
I mean, if we're talking in medical terms, these people did not just have a cold. They did not just have even a dread disease, but were saved before it was too late. They were dead. They were stone cold dead spiritually. Not the slightest spark of true spiritual interest. Quite the opposite. Murderous hatred for Christ. All of them. And even if that were not the case, even if they were not opposed from the core of their being, their situation would still be impossible. Even if they wanted to be saved, their situation is beyond impossible because they're sinners under the wrath of God with a debt that they could not possibly pay, an infinite load of guilt. Can anyone fix them? Could anyone even conceive of how to save them? How could you possibly conceive of the work of redemption? And believe me, if someone had not told you about the work of redemption in Christ's substitutionary atonement, you would not have thought of it. No human mind could have thought of it. The angels themselves desired to look into those things, and they were amazed at the the revealing of the mystery of God's plan of salvation. They marvel then at this glory and this wisdom as well as this, and you must think, by the way, of the immense wisdom it took to devise the plan of redemption. And then supremely, there's great lengths at which it actually took to atone for their sins. The love of God to sin Christ. The love of Christ to be willing to suffer and to die, even to live in this cursed earth among us for the years that he did. But mainly this atonement. Because while you're thinking of that vast multitude whom no one can number, and you're thinking of its vast diversity of every tribe and tongue under heaven, even the most, the most hardened to the gospel people, representatives are brought to saving faith. While you're thinking of all that greatness, think about the greatness of their sin. I don't know about you, but I've sinned a couple times in my lifetime few times here and there you know I'm not saying the truth of it am I a lot more than that a vast vast innumerable can you number your sins I can't number my sins too much I can't I, I can barely remember them all but those that I remember when I think about them they're terrible and they're so many and they're so great And then you multiply that by all the hundreds and thousands and millions of people in that group. And you think of the greatness, the mass of sin that Christ had to atone for on the cross. And you must marvel. You must. It staggers the mind. And then he had to rise from the dead. The proof was not... Complete until that moment of resurrection, this impossible moment of this fully dead Christ standing on his feet, having conquered death and sin. But keep in mind this as we look back at this great, and it is the great and central work of all human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But keep in mind, even though Jesus said of the atonement, it is finished, of the atonement. That did not mean that the full work of redemption was yet complete. Because they see they actually have to be brought in. Until the moment they're actually brought in, at least to some extent, it's a little bit in question. It hasn't actually been accomplished as yet. We know it's going to be. 
but it hasn't actually happened yet. Because, now look, I know that these difficulties are nothing compared to our sin, but look, there were some difficulties to bring us to Christ. It was not automatic. This entire world system is set up, is designed to keep us away from Christ. The world is catechized, the world is drilled in every way that is going to undermine faith in Christ. And you you think of just any aspect of living in this world you want to. Whether the consumerism and the material goods, the other various temptations of, of youth, the temptations of middle age, the temptations of old age, the distractions that are given to us. All these sorts of things. And you think about the philosophies and the education and the rest of it that is drilled into us. It is designed specifically to keep us away from Christ. And yet somehow this conquering savior, this one on the white horse, no one could stop him. No one could stop him from bringing us to himself, not even ourselves. He won us to himself. God is greatly glorified in the specific ways that he has brought each and every one of us to faith. And were we to tell that story in its its truth, not embellished, not pointing to ourselves, it would bring great glory. Each one of us. But now you multiply that by the tens and the hundreds and the thousands and the millions. And you say that is glory. That is amazing. Behold the great work of Christ. Thirdly and finally the question who are these? We read it in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered saying to me who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from I said to him sir you know so he said to me these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb we don't stay forever in the handiwork of Christ we are brought back then to Christ having seen this handiwork now our attention has to go who are they where do they come from And our attention is brought back to the Savior. It's his work. Now, this elder, interesting elder, I don't think he's asking because he does not know the answer to the question. I think he's asking in order to make a point with John and with us. I think this elder is probably the same one who spoke to John before. Do you remember that in Revelation chapter 5? I'll just read that again, Revelation 5, starting in verse 4. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Do not weep, John. Don't worry. This great Lion of the tribe of Judah, he's going to prevail. He has prevailed. And now after all of human history has been fast-forwarded, as it were, to the end, and he sees this great multitude in front of him, as it were, and he comes. You see these, John? That's what I was talking about. Who are these? Who are these, and how did they get there? Who are these, and how did they get there? 
Well, the answer is these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They came out of the great tribulation. Now, we know that sometimes people sort of focus on a specific point in in future history which there will be a tribulation. But you and I know that we are promised tribulation throughout all of the age of the church. Every single one of us, we are going to have tribulation before we meet the Lord. It is God's will that it would be that way. And these are the ones who come out of that great tribulation. These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white. It's a little bit of different picture, isn't it, from the, the souls of the faithful who were given a white robe. It's pointed to the very same thing. It's the righteousness of Christ. But the idea of your own filthy robes and of the being washed, of you washing them in the blood of Christ, it's not, of course, that your work is going to do it. The point is, do you have the agent to do it? None of us have the agent necessary to wash our robes. All we have is our own filthy rags. We've seen that before. Can you imagine trying to wash something when all you have available are filthy rags that make it even worse? But they have been given this cleansing agent of the blood of Christ that is able to make even the worst of us perfectly clean. And they wash their robes in him, in his blood. And they are clean. And that's a great answer then to the question The sadness of John in chapter 5. He was very sad, wasn't he? As he thought that no one was able to open these scrolls. No one is able to move ahead this work of redemption. And we're all, in essence, doomed. Trapped in our sin and unable to come to Christ. No, these ones Christ has washed in his own blood. Now, The obvious implication is the one that we've had more than once. Previously I've said repent. But today I say believe. Not because these things are ultimately any different. But because this time it's not out of the threat. The threat is very real. We must not forget about the threat of hell. But out of the beauty now of heaven. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be in heaven? Don't you want to be part of that group, of that innumerable throng of people in all their perfection, worshiping the Lamb? I must admit I'm sometimes amazed at people. that They are nowhere near as afraid of hell as they ought to be. They treat it as if it were something like a game. But on the other hand, they are nowhere near as desirous of heaven as they ought to be. They have made their peace, I suppose, with the things in this. Now, don't get me wrong. I am thankful for as nice as we have it in this world. It could be a lot worse. I'm thankful for God's common grace. I'm thankful for his particular mercies to people. But please, please, I I suppose it's like the picture of people who live in a cave. They think that it's light if there's, you know, this much grayness around. This world isn't all that great. Heaven is vastly better. And we must be attracted to that great picture of heaven. Don't you want to be there? 
You know, I would say even if you were just thinking of the other side of the equation, of just thinking of the, the threat of hell, in addition to the inconceivable pains of hell, added to it will be this thought, this constant thought that the joys of heaven were offered to me. A terrible thought. Now, the, the essence of hell we've mentioned is the wrath of God, but surely there's also added to it then this constant gnawing thought. For, for those who have lived under the hearing of the gospel, that Christ was offered to them, and they refused. Terrible thought. But again, such a Savior, he's the one that we're pointing to. Such a Savior, he's so wonderful. How can you refuse him? He calls you even now to come to him in faith. You ought to believe Second, we as Christians ought to worship. And I'm really not sure what more to say on this. If what we have spoken of have not brought you to the place of genuine worship, you may be a hopeless case. I don't know what could possibly be more to be brought you to worship of the living God. But just to say again that our worship is to be prompted by the works of God as well as who God is himself and particularly by the work of redemption. If the angels in heaven sang at the founding of the universe and the creation of the stars, much more so did they, and much more should we worship at the thought of the work, his great work of redemption, of bringing all these people throughout, from the worst difficulties and the obstacles possibly imaginable to the highest place conceivable. And we don't just have to think of that great multitude. Maybe that's too much for you. You don't have to think of that. You can think of individual cases. You can think about your case. You can think about other cases in this church. People around you. Your family. Think on these things. One of the reasons why it's a good thing to know church history. You see the extent of God's kingdom. You see all the rest of those stories. You see the stories of these reformations and revivals. And you see the great work of God as it had been carried on throughout all the centuries. You come to see the greatness of what Christ has been doing as he is riding forth on that white horse to conquer. Worship in him. Worship him in all these things. And thirdly, a reminder to us that they came out of tribulation. They came out of tribulation because there's no other way to come. You understand, right? There's no other door. There's no other pathway. It's one of the problems explored in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. As some of them don't want to come through the way that is designated. And they want some easier way. No easy way is given to us. They came out of tribulation because there's no other way. Why? Because even that enhances the glory of Christ. This whole universe is a God glorification machine. That's what it is. And every aspect of it is contrived and designed to maximize the glory of the living God. And so it is not just, and though it is supremely, and that is the essence, that is the, 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 the emanation, the point at which the light is coming out in the cross of Christ. It's not just that. But it's the specific way then that he brings us out of tribulation to salvation, to completeness and salvation. That brings him glory too. That enhances the glory of Christ. Do you remember the question that Satan asked God in Job? In Job 1. I'll just read from Job. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Do you see how that goes? I mean, so what? Job claims the name of the living God. Who cares? It means nothing to me. It doesn't display anything much at all. He's got it easy. He's living a life of perfect ease. There's no tribulation at all. It means very little to me. So God says, okay then. And you know that he brought great tribulation on Job. And then in Job chapter 2 it says this. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. He holds fast to me even still. God is showing him off. He says, Behold, my servant Job. Even though he's been enduring this great tribulation, these terrible troubles that you brought to him, all this pain, yet he holds fast to my name. He is faithful. It brings him glory. Now it doesn't just bring him glory that his it does bring him glory that his saints endure through this persecution, but that's not the end of it. Because then it brings God even more glory to rescue them out of it all. And that's, of course, the thing that we're being seen, that's being pointed to. The, the people in Revelation, these churches, for the most part, are persecuted people. And this is a picture that God knows how to rescue them out of all their troubles. And that at the end of it, they are there in heaven. God is able to rescue them. That's also part of his glory, his greatness. He's going to save them out of that tribulation. He's not just going to put them through it. He's going to save them. And in a sense, he, in, in a sort of larger sense, he already has. What do I mean by that? Well, we know from Hebrews 4.3 that the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. The works were finished because God knows the end from the beginning. And he's able to make sure that all these things happen. And if he has decided that such a thing has happened, it's as good as already done. And I don't know if this thought has occurred to you, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, inasmuch as this picture was given to John, and inasmuch as it was a true sight of future reality, inasmuch as it was a true sight of what's going to be, you were in that crowd. Somehow or another, you were represented in that group of people. If he really did see the future as it was going to be, he really did see people from every tribe and tongue under heaven. Doesn't that mean that you were there? Well, if you don't want to receive that, if you don't think that's a good and necessary consequence of Scripture, receive this. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Do you think that he sees your face there? 
Do you think that he looks in the future and sees the face of every one of his believers in that innumerable throng? Do you think that's part of what it says in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? The thought, the sight of all of us and all the other ones that he'd ever redeemed being there together in heaven worshiping the living God. He is able to redeem us from all of our troubles. Now these are things that must take place. There must be tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Great God, Heavenly Father, Lord, truly we acknowledge our sins. Truly we acknowledge the reality that our sin is very dim in this world. But Lord, how we thank you for pulling back the curtain one more time for us to see just a little bit of that which awaits. Lord, help us to see things as you do. Help us to understand the greatness of Christ's work, this great work of redemption. Help us, Lord, to take great joy in it and to worship you in it, to worship Christ in these things. And, Lord, help us to understand that though it is absolutely the case that it is your will that we should be in tribulation in this world, Help us to see it is of your glory that you are also able to, us to, able to rescue us out of all of these things and to bring us safely to the desired haven. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.